Thank you everyone for joining, by the way. This was uh, an impromptu thing that came off the back of the pull request piece that I published yesterday that some of you may have seen. And if you haven't, then don't worry about it. We're gonna review a little bit of it here. Um, but it, the, the title of it was the future of open parentheses ads, close parentheses, privacy. Um, and it was kind of a high level look at a lot of the exciting things that are going on in ads and privacy that Ben and Eric have also been following and talking and writing about. So I thought it'd be a good idea, given that probably the three of us have been the ones most vocal about all this to actually get us in a room and chat about it. Um, ben, how did you, or Eric, how did you want to do this? Did we want to go through the sort of talking points that we were going through, Ben, or? Yeah, I think I think you should give a, a high-level overview of your piece, which uh, everyone should read and subscribe to your to the pull request. But I, I think it's super interesting and will give sort of a good groundwork for discussion. I actually have quite a few questions for you coming off that piece. So I think we can sort of go, go in that direction. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, okay, so let me maybe just summarize it to the extent I can in a purely audio format where you don't even see my arms waving wildly as they are. <laughs> and I don't have the help of a schematic, but um, so here's, here's the short version of my longish piece, which is, you know, if you think about like the entire 20 years of like the internet before even I was kind of playing in tech or making my living shuffling around data and pixels and whatnot, right? It was founded on this like paradigm of, and I'm intentionally using kind of like dated language, the thin client fat server, which basically means the browser doesn't do anything. It just sits there and renders an HTML doc. And there's a little bit of state, i.e. the cookie ID, or in the case of mobile, the device ID, or you know, in the case of a modern phone, an, an IDFA or an AID. But I, either way, these are all unique keys. And you do stuff online, right? Like you put a thing in a, you, you, you load a page, you load an experience, you put a thing in your shopping cart. Um, and then all that data along with your, your primary, that ID goes into this cloud and a bunch of stuff happens. <laughs> it's often not clear what, and that primary key, that key is used as like the primary key to use database language for a bunch of stuff that's known about you. And that I, I have on, on my post, um, what's called the Lumascape, which is kind of the map of, for a lot of people in ad tech, but it's just basically a collection of logos and kind of the orientation of how like money goes in one direction and data the other, basically, <laughs> which is the entire ad tech landscape. And so um, the reason why you need some notion of you, a primary key is because it's, it's a very fragmented universe and everyone needs to share and sort of a common name for you, the consumer, right? And th this has been the reigning paradigm for as, as long as I've been in tech, as long as anyone in this room has, has, has been in tech. And, you know, the, the cool and interesting thing is that this whole, this whole thing is getting inverted. And, and you might ask, well, why is that? It's like, well, let's ask ourselves the question. We're all holding this phone in, our, in front of our face um, that, you know, would have been considered like a high-end desktop machine, you know, not that many years ago, right? Like we're, we're actually holding a real computer in our hand. And the browser is no longer really our portal to the outside world. Um, ben might have these figures more handy because he, you know, tends to publish more, more things with numbers in them. But like what fraction of e-commerce or just consumer usage is via app versus web? You know, that crossed over 50%, however long it was. I don't know, Ben, if you know the numbers or dates off, off the top of your head. I do not. Okay. But, you know, it's, you know, it's funny, this, this transition, I was actually at Facebook when it was happening. It was, I mean, this sort of switch was happening as early as like 2011. Um, some might remember that at the time Facebook made this really bad bet in like HTML5, <laughs> thinking that the browser would be the end all be all and apps wouldn't be the future. But that, it, it quickly became clear that that wasn't the case, right? And uh, up to now, apps obviously totally dominate. People buy and book and do everything they would normally do through a browser. In fact, preferentially through an app.
And, you know, for the app publisher, it's actually better experience. Here you are running real native code on the device with local memory, right? That just does stuff, right? And that's just a lot better than trying to cram everything into a little mobile browser, right? And um, so, you know, that's the future. If that's, if that's the case, then why in God's name, like when I, like on this app, for example, I go and I do a thing, right? And that data effectively gets joined to an ID, goes into the cloud, a bunch of computation happens and it feeds another experience. And then it goes back into the cloud again, and it comes back again. Like, why in God's name would you do that, <laughs> right? If you're actually trying to design a sort of dynamic ads data ecosystem. It just makes really no sense whatsoever when you've actually got real code running on the device and you've even got libraries that'll do things like manage a local database like SQLite or even do sophisticated machine learning like TensorFlow Lite, which is a, which is a version of Google sort of machine learning platform that runs on Android, right? Why, why would you ever constantly be hitting the cloud with all the latencies that are implied? That's not how you would design the system right now if you're redesigning the ethics system. And so what we're basic, what's basically happening is the old cookie browser paradigm, right? Which is, I mean, it's not exactly accurate, but it's more or less a good mental model of what's going on. You know, we're moving from that to an on-app model where most of your data stays on the device, right? And you know, part of what's pushing this to be clear is not just like, well, it makes sense from an engineering perspective. This whole privacy, privacy is now for real. In fact, I was just literally driving on the 101 yesterday to East Bay, and there's this enormous billboard that Apple has right off the right of the of the right before you go to the Bay Bridge, which is like where the Yahoo sign used to be. For those who live in the Bay Area, like that's like the most important, probably the most expensive billboard <laughs> in San Francisco because it's like the one that all the geeks see when they like go over the, the Bay Bridge. And there's a massive thing there of some happy looking Apple user. And it says, you know, the iPhone is privacy or some very simple, like literally equating the iPhone with privacy, right? <laughs> and did, did somebody express disgust? Did I, did I, just, I, hear, I, I, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit, sorry. <laughs> well, Despite my history with the company, I'm slightly less cynical about their position. I think they, they actually do believe in privacy. Um, but so privacy is obviously a selling point. And then, not, you know, and not to mention, of course, from the regulatory perspective, the EU, um, you know, that has decided to, um, if it can't innovate, it'll regulate instead, has decided to be like the world's global privacy data cop or whatever. And, um, you know, American companies are more. And then also California's passed what's called CCPA, the consumer um, God, what is it? Uh, what is the C? The other C? Whatever. Protection Act. It's basically C a California Consumer Protection Act. California Consumer Protection Act, which isn't exactly the same as GDPR. In fact, there are subtle differences. In fact, when you take privacy training at a large company, one of the, like the got your quiz questions is like the exact differences between CCPA and, and GDPR. But it's it's effectively the same, and a lot of it, a lot of the language of that is super boring. So we're not. I don't think we're going to go into it too much. But it, it's a lot of it's around like the the managing of like third party data right like when your data goes into this cloud into this enormous quilt of logos right all those all those low almost all of those logos are companies with whom you don't have a first party relationship or like it's not like airbnb or facebook it's some middleman effectively right and so a lot of the law and regulation is precisely around this managing of your data as it goes into the cloud right that is definitionally what is privacy on the, in the current regulatory framework? To, again, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm seeing a bunch of ad tech professionals who are maybe groaning slightly in the audience. I'm obviously super simplifying this for the sake of making it accessible, right? It's not strictly speaking true, but it's, it's largely true, right? And so for a bunch of reasons, right? Engineering reasons, privacy reasons, regulatory reasons, it makes sense to actually keep the data on the device. Um, and what that means is it's not, it's not just your data, by the way. And I, you know, again, I, I actually worked on this at my previous employer, Branch Metrics. Um, you know, was have, was very much involved in this for for a bunch of reasons. I mean, a lot of it's covered by NDA, so I can't go into deep details. But it it really is taking 
all the machine learning code, the optimization, the targeting, all the logic, a lot of it pretty sophisticated that lives on the cloud side and literally running it on your phone. Like literally, literally it's part of the ad auction, part of the optimization, the targeting is actually happening on your phone. Very little happens in the cloud. The metaphor I would constantly use at Branch to like motivate, and the engineers loved it because it was kind of, it was kind of wonky, was that the, you know, the old ad tech ecosystem is like your typical front engine gas car. It's like a Honda Civic or something, right? Like everything's in the front, the transmission, you know, the electrical system, the, the engine itself. And then the rest of the car is basically just a user interface for the user. The rest of the car does nothing really. It's just there for the user to kind of look at and sit in, right? This new system where you're actually running both the code and the logic on the phone where it's being used is more like the Tesla, right? Part of the reason why the Tesla's so fast, if you own a Tesla, is that the motors are right at the reel, right? Like there's not this massive motor train between where the torque is being generated and where it's being consumed. The motors are literally right there at the wheels and spinning as fast as the wheels spin, which is part of the reason why the Tesla's so fast. And so that's part of how the ads logic runs so well because it's running on the device. And I'll just wrap up there and I'll stop blabbing. So we all, we turn this into a conversation rather than me uh, haranguing everybody. But the, the interesting thing here is, right, like we've kind of violated the all the laws of ad tech physics <laughs> in that, it, you know, typically when you make things that are more privacy safe, there's always kind of a trade off there where you're, you're using less data, um, the granularity of the targeting is less or, you know, the recency of it is less. You've hobbled the system in some sense as a trade off for privacy. But, you know, very potentially, if you engineer this correctly, you actually maximize or, or actually improve monetization. Right. Even though you've actually created a more a legitimately privacy safe product. And to be clear, this isn't like privacy, like packaging, like in this new paradigm, like here's here's the opt out. I take the phone that I'm holding in my hand and I literally throw it into the bay. <laughs> right. That's it. I've opted out. Whatever connects me to the outside world, whatever data that a marketer would use is literally gone and nobody knows it. It is it is dead in that phone. and It is gone forever, which is not how opt outs actually work in our current ecosystem in which it's often very difficult to fully opt out of every logo in that diagram and all the data they have around you. So it really does work, but, and it really is, it is a real privacy gain for users, but um, it is potentially very likely to actually increase monetization, or certainly at least not hurt it, which again is, is amazing. And, you know, if you want to be a super cynical, hard-nosed marketer about it, it's like, oh, CPMs, i.e. the cost per actual, you know, number of impressions will actually go up even as we're even more in compliance with, with privacy. And um, so I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up there, but, and, and we're gonna get to, I think a lot of this here, but there's a lot of implications here in terms of competitiveness, um, you know, monetization, where it leaves other members of that third-party ecosystem. But I, I'm, I think, Ben, this is probably where we can go into our, um, our talking points, right? Well, I think, I think the, um, it's interesting the way you started. I think there's a, a historical context for this, weaving aside all the regulatory questions, which is, this is how computing has progressed in all kinds of areas, not just ad tech. Like the, the reason why it was centralized, whether it was initially in a big computer room and then it pushed out to the PC, and we're going through a p similar shift here where all the computing is in the cloud and it's being pushed to the phone, is when, when you're first doing something, it's hard, it's expensive, the processors aren't good enough, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just more efficient and possible to do stuff in a centralized place and then push the data out. This is what you're talking about, the sort of thin and thick models. And you're actually seeing this in lots of areas where stuff's getting pushed out to the phone. Like Apple's made a big push here as far as like machine learning and all those sorts of things where they'll train the models in the cloud, but then they'll push the models actually to the phone and execute them on the phone. And so you, it's analyzing your photo library on the phone. 
it's doing Siri now on the phone. And I think that what you're seeing here from an engineering perspective is the same sort of paradigm happening. And I think what you put your finger on that's so interesting is this sort of secular shift in technology happens to align quite well with ongoing sort of regulatory pressure and sort of Apple's positioning in the marketplace. And that that's sort of leading to a perfect storm of, of sort of inverting the model as you referred to. Yeah, so that's that's a good point, Ben. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, like ad tech is boring, let's face it, right? There's, it's, there's a bizarre species of person called an ad tech professional, which I see many in the room, but the rest of normal humanity doesn't give a shit about any of this, right? But the, the key thing is, and I make this point in my piece that like, Ads is kind of like the porn business, right? Like it's the completely ruthless, pragmatic, early adopter of whatever technology gives it like a small quantitative edge, right? And so ads is kind of building this out first in many ways, or at least it seems that way to me, obviously I'm a little bit biased, but this doesn't have implications on all the data in your phone. Like I'm looking at my Apple Watch, which I, I like as a product, by the way, I use it to, to monitor my sleep and it knows more about me than anything in the world does, right? And I would actually, in fact, you know, it made me think of this. I, I was having a session with my one medical, you know, physician. We're talking about my sleep. And, like, I wanted to share with him my sleep data. And the only way to do it was, like, hold up my phone to, like, the Zoom camera so that he could look at the printout, right? And I so would like to have just shared it with him because, here, you know, under my control, of course, right? But that, but that's the future that we're building where it, it basically lives on the, um, you know, on, on the phone itself. And, and again, it is, I, I don't know how geeky the crowd is. Like, if People raise their hands and ask questions. I can get into a little bit into the, the technology of it. The technology is fascinating. And I make the slightly crude analogy in my piece, which whatever, at this point, no one's going to hire me in tech anyhow, so I'll just go ahead and be crude. But it's like, it's, it's almost, if, if you actually go with the on-device paradigm, it's almost as if like literally all the doctors in the world said that, you know, you had to perform top, you know, you couldn't actually go in through the mouth to perform a tonsillectomy. You had to perform it rectally somehow, right? Through like the other end, like how... If you were actually under that constraint, what would you build? Well, you would build like the world's longest like tongs or like, you know, robotic instruments to do it, right? Which is how it works in practice, right? How, how you actually build this. Um, I make the analogy in my piece that it's like, it's like nothing that any, at least any technology I've ever been involved in before, right? In regular technology, like sure, it's complicated, but at the end of the day, there's some virtual server somewhere that you can just log in and see where the code is running and like tail the logs and like fucking fix it or like push a code fix or something, right? That's not how it works in an on-device world at all. There's no box to log into. The, 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 the code is running on millions of devices scattered all over Asia, North America, wherever. And the user has like a porn video open and five other apps and it's massive memory load and the network is spotty and you can't control it. I make the comparison. It's almost like NASA talking to like the Mars rover or like the Voyager probe, right? Like they send instructions and like it either receives them and does something or it doesn't. But if you like brick the box, like there's like fucking no fixing it, right? Because you can't, you can't actually physically access it. And so I don't know how technical we're going to get in this conversation, but it's very interesting from the engineering perspective um, how you actually build this, this technology. Well, to, just, to, just to kind of um, piggyback on, on what Ben was talking about with, um, with Siri, and their processing all being on device. Um, you know, that, it, the same is true uh, for, for a lot of different products. Um, you know, Google's uh, smart keyboard does the same, right? So like they didn't want to transmit, you know, this bulk of, of, of uh, text that you had searched for and, and typed on your keyboard into central server, right? And so they built this product where the model is uh, kind of uh, ingested by the device. And then, you know, the, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, the model is kind of re recalibrated and the model coefficients are beamed back. And, and it's, it's the same with, um, 
uh, with uh, actually my understanding is it's the same with Apple's ad network, right? All the um, data that's used to personalize ads to you is actually all kept on device. It's not uh, transmitted back to like a centralized server to, to sort of use in, in, in optimizing a model, but that model is, you know, again, ingested by the device. And it's also true for uh, Android just launched or Google just launched this new private or Android um, privacy compute core or something. It's, but it's basically like a whole segment of memory that's and, and uh, storage is set aside on the phone now for that purpose, for basically staying on the device and not, not um, being transmittable off of the device so that, you know, that apps can utilize it to, to do this exact kind of thing. Yeah. So um, yeah, I can't comment on the, uh, Apple ad network there, but um, <laughs> I will say that it's um, uh, what, what is public. So I think what, what Eric is, somebody might be asking, like, how does this magic happen? Uh, there's these two technologies for those who want to look stuff up. Um, one is called uh, differential privacy and the other is called federated learning. And in fact, my next piece on pull request is a kind of high level layman's take on both of those because they're two fields that have fascinated me for the past two or three months. And uh, fortunately, actually, both both Google and Apple have actually published publicly facing research papers on it. And so you, um, and I'll, I'll have links in my post. But uh, and we can get into that here. But basically, the the story there is that they either add like noise to the data such that you actually ensure a certain amount of privacy, even though your data is being shared, or in a more sophisticated way, I think somebody was referring to the keyboard thing or Google's doing, they actually run the training code on the device. And instead of passing up your data, they pass up the, ma the model parameters for the model train on your data, they, they combine those into a macro model, and then that gets syndicated out to various devices. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not like it's not like your actual data going to the cloud. It's a model that results. Think of it as like a linear regression on a bunch of points. And in fact, it's just like the equation for the line that goes up into the cloud rather than all the data points that went into it, for example. That's part of sort of the, the magic alchemy, how this, how this actually works. Yeah, and I, and, I, think, and the, a lot of the, I think the other thing, I, I think it's worth really just <clears throat> doubling down on making clear how stuff used to work and how it works now. Because I, I, I think that... I mean, I've gotten a lot of traction writing about ads just because, to your point, Antonio, no one writes about it. Um, and right. you two know way more about it than I do. But this idea where you visit a website and you have some sort of identifier, it's usually a cookie in the browser or your IDFA on, on, on your device. And that is basically sent to, goes through all these different sites. There's an auction held where they say, oh, there's this user has these various characteristics, et cetera, et cetera, has visited these sites who wants to sell an ad to this person? That auction is run. The ad is, uh, someone wins the, the, the auction. The ad is displayed and then your page loads. And, it, and it's honestly, it's mind blowing that it happens as fast as it does, that you can have a page load relatively instantly. And that ad is actually, an auction has been run. That ad has been selected for you and has been displayed for you. But the, part of the reason that's happening is it's all happening in the cloud and all this stuff is being passed around. And to your point, that like that's why we, there's no control really for the user on on what's going on there. And and I think the whereas the the difference here is all of that like the the like wh why don't you walk through how does that work in a world where all my data and my identity is sort of on the phone? I mean, maybe Flock is an interesting way to start here about like like right. how that actually works in practice because when you when you realize what's actually happening in the cloud, it's kind of mind blowing. And to think that yeah. how that's going to happen on a device level, I think, is is very interesting. Yeah. So I know, Eric, you have strong opinions on Flock, and I, I, we'll get there. But just for, to keep it slightly abstract at the moment, I'll share an anecdote 
So I, I built, um, I guess my first real claim to fame was building um, what was called FBX, which is Facebook Exchange, which was the, the real-time exchange at Facebook, which was sort of the first break in their walled garden of ads targeting or whatever. And I remember when we were building it, at the time, Facebook was actually, all of Facebook, global Facebook, was served out of like an East Coast data center and a West Coast one. Like, that's it, right? And, um, and that's where we had the ad tech stack. And I remember those European advertisers who wanted in on the, on the alpha. And I literally had to calculate this vertical distance between, I think this data center was in North Carolina to the main data centers in Europe to see whether it was even like physically possible according to relativistic bounds for the bid request and the reply to go out and come back in 120 milliseconds. Because as, as Ben was hinting, uh, you know, in the old way of doing things, like when you load an experience, like literally all the data like none of the computation happens locally. All that goes out into the cloud as what's called a bid request, either explicitly in RTB format or implicitly in, in a non-RTB format. But basically, and then the machines on the other side have to sit there and say, oh, wait, who is this person again? And they look up all the data, all the things you've done. There's a sophisticated model that's run that's done for every advertiser. There's then an auction, so all those bids get ranked. One gets picked. They then pick an ad creative, which is another another choice that's often separate, and that gets sent back to the phone. And that all needs to happen in 120 milliseconds with, you know, whatever it is, you know, 15,000 nautical miles or whatever between the East Coast of the United States and Europe, right? And it just couldn't be done fast enough sometimes, right? Um, so that's, that's the old world, right? In the new world, right, how this would in theory work is, um, again, you know, you, you load a page, right? And, oh, look, you know, it's, it's somewhere where an ad impression could appear, right? And so what has happened ahead of time, right, in theory, and again, there's various ways of implementing this, right? And, and just to be absolutely clear, there's nothing being divulged here from my previous employers or anything. This is just thinking at a super abstract level, right? How would you do this? Well, you have machines on the cloud side that before this whole drama happened said, okay, look, we've got this catalog of millions and millions and millions and millions of ads, for whatever reason, we think these like thousand ads, for example, are the ones that this user is likely to, you know, to sort of trip up against in terms of what experiences they're looking at. So we're going to put those on the phone. So they live on the phone. Like some of the ad tech people might be asking like, well, what the hell? Like there has to be state from the outside world because you have to know what ads are running, campaign budgets, like the full rea the whole operational nightmare of an ad system is all happening off the phone. So how do you get that on the phone? It's a good question. You've got to prepackage all that stuff and bundle it into the bundle at the phone. So there's a local version of your ad server that's on the phone that has whatever, as many ads as you can cram out to that phone, right? And then the person goes and does things on the phone, searches for a thing, looks at a thing, whatever. And hopefully, if you've done your job right, they match to ads that are sitting on the phone already. Hopefully to, to, to many of them, because again, for the ad tech wonks in the crowd, what you want is bid density, right? You want as many people bidding on every viable experience possible. That's how you maximize revenue, right? And so ideally, if you've bundled your ads correctly, there are several ads matching all the time. And so you, rank, you run a local model, right? Because again, here, again, the key thing, remember, there's a lot of data on the phone that one can use. Like I, I actually linked to Google, right? Google has an API that actually tells you things like app usage, right? In Android, if you have the right permissions, you can look at, you know, is Bluetooth on? You have fine-grained geo. You have all sorts of data on the phone that you would never have on the cloud, right? So you input all of that data. You use it in a ranking model that runs on the phone, physically running on the phone. You run the auction. You pick a winner, and, and on life goes. Some of you might be asking, okay, well, but how do you get, like, stats back? Like, how do you know if the ad's doing well, how much they spent, who to bill? Like, all the, again, all the operational nightmare. How does that work? Right, you've got to get that data off the phone. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't know what happened. And so locally, some of that data 
gets again you're not you're not getting it at the impression level because again you're not hitting the outside world to serve an impression right like if that person turns off their internet they can still get served ads right because the ad system doesn't depend on the internet to actually run right so anyhow the the person goes and interacts with ads clicks on them or doesn't or whatever right and that data gets bundled into a separate thing gets uploaded into a server and then gets analyzed and looked at the, the same conventional way that every other piece of data gets looked at but it's it's a major it's a fundamentally different way of thinking about how to architect a data ecosystem. It's really quite different than what we're doing today. Hopefully, did I did I put enough of an emphasis on that, Ben? <laughs> that the big difference that's happened here. Yeah, the, I I think so. Um, cool. Antonio, one one to, to your to your point about um, you know this this uh, potentially happening offline. Um, that's a benefit too, right? I mean, there are right. there are uh, there are benefits to that not happening kind of in real time, using up uh, uh, you know. Uh, or like if a user's on like an unstable connection, for instance, right? Um, yeah. Or using a yeah. battery. Like the, I read a, there's an interesting paper um, by uh, Microsoft Research talking about an application of federated learning for um, their native ads. And they said, we would only actually transmit this data back, like the, the model coefficients and, and the, basically the results, the sort of aggregated results of, of um, you know, the advertising, the impression serving when the user was, uh, you know, on Wi-Fi, right? So they're unmetered bandwidth. And potentially plugged in to a, a battery uh, to a, an electric outlet, right? So, so in that way, it's it's even beneficial just from like a battery usage standpoint or a data usage standpoint. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, I mean that's right. That that's the reality, right? If, if you're looking at markets in developing Asia, the global South, etc., not everyone is walking around in like wonderful 4G or 5G with five bar service on a high end iPhone, right? Some people are on like low end or mid market Android phones, and yeah, you know, bandwidth is still expensive, right? Which, of course, there's, there's a trade-off there, Eric. Nothing is free, right? On the one hand, you're not hitting the network every time you load an ad. That said, that initial bundle that goes out with the ads is bigger than a single ad impression or the data that would be in an ad impression. And so you're trading off kind of like the async upload process to the online process that would be happening in a conventional ad. But anyhow, we're, we're nerding out here a little bit too much probably for, for this format. But it's, it's a good well, point well, that, that you made. So here's my big question, Antonio. You talked about how you can get all this data from the phone you want to store all this stuff locally. I think the question from a sort of competition standpoint is, is there realistically a way anyone other than Apple or Google could do this? Right. That's, so that's the problem. And this is one thing that I've, I've back. Well, I guess I'm writing now again, but back when I was a naive writer who thought he could change the world by, you know, having a wired column. One of the things I used to bang on is like, everyone here is clamoring for privacy, but it's like, and everyone's treating it like it's this absolute good, right? And if like X amount of privacy is good, then like two X of privacy is better. Well, guess what? Like what's called the privacy knob, right? Has privacy on one side, but you know, competitiveness on the other, right? In the sense that if you architect the world this way, as Ben is pointing out, the company that controls the operating system, be it Apple or Google or any future OS in the future, controls this entire traffic and data, right? Because again, you've, you've literally lost the idea, and I mean, I know Eric has written a lot about the whole IDFA change, and we can get into that if you want, but if you basically get rid of that primary key and you don't share it with the outside world, there's not much for the Lumascape to, to, to do, right? That, that huge patchwork quilt of companies and logos on my post, they don't play, basically, if the data doesn't go into the server and there's no ID associated with it, right? So it, to some degree, it does mean, those who are very cynical, and I think Eric is probably one of these people, or maybe, maybe not, Eric, I'll, I won't put words in your mouth, but I, I, I do read your writing, but those who are a little bit more cynical about this work think that potentially these companies are actually going in that direction less for do good or privacy reasons and more for reasons of, you know, entrenching an advantage that they might have. 
Well, I, and I think the point is worth making that it's very interesting. What, what I love about that Lumiscape picture is it, it's very telling that for all the grief ad tech gets, it's been for years unbelievably competitive, right? Like it, it, is, right. it is really the epitome of competition. And what's interesting is that, that you picked a Lumiscape picture from a few years ago. I don't know which one. I just know by seeing it. Because every year recently, it gets smaller and smaller as there's more and more consolidation happening. And that's, and this consolidation is being actively driven by regulation and by changes, particularly by Apple and Google. And those changes are absolutely reducing competition. And it's frustrating. Uh, I, I guess I'd feel better about it if, if folks would just admit that that's the case and we could just accept it. There was some comments, I think, from the EC a couple weeks ago saying, no, we can have both. It's like, no, you can't, if you really can't, right? Like that right. the, the trade-off of the wild, wild west in ads is that you absolutely got mass amounts of competition. You did not get privacy. And when you push in the other direction, particularly given the fact that privacy is being defined as First party data is private. Third party sharing is not like that. That's and I think this is the other thing. Lots of people are like anti ad a lot of and I'm not sure they're really prepared for a world where you're getting just as many ads as before. The difference is that because it's all controlled by one company as opposed to a landscape of companies, everyone's going to call it private. And I think people are going to be, you know, some of the anti ad people are going to be a little disappointed at that reality. Yeah, Eric, do you want to add something to that? I know you've written a lot about this. Well, just just to the point about, um, you know, could could anyone but Google or Apple really uh, execute this right at scale? And and the answer is probably not, right? Because I mean, any given like if I think about any given app developer, well, their purview is their app, right? Their purview is the DAU of their of their app, right? Which is however, even for a big app, it's it's not that much. It's maybe a few million, right? Um, DAUs or 10 million, that'd be a lot, right? DAU. Um, and, and so you could do this, but you'd, it'd be very siloed. The data that you'd have on all these users' devices that you're pushing out would be very like sort of siloed um, in the sense that like it's, well, your model is, is constrained to you and it's constrained to your users, right? Whereas Google and Apple, well, they could say, look, you know, these are our users. These are our DAU. Every single iPhone owner, every single Android uh, you know, device owner is our user base. That's our DAU. And so when we implement this, it's just a much bigger scale. Right. And that's that's been my my issue with Apple's framing of 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 ATT. And and now I think even kind of in, in a more like sort of severe uh, advance on that trajectory with the private relay is that like, well, they get to say, look, you know, this is you know, w we say that what we say is privacy just so happens to be, you know, what we the, the territory that we lord over. Right. It's all of all of the iPhone owning population is our first party data. It just so happens that. That you know the way we've defined first-party data fits, uh, you know, fits the way that our the landscape of of our sort of like user base looks, and and well, I guess that's lucky for us, um, and it just it just it just feels very phony, um, and and I think what you end up getting is like well the same exact data being used for personalizing ads, um, in a way that's you know and I'll admit it's fundamentally dissimilar to the way that like Facebook or other companies do it with you know using device IDs and like this kind of cloud-based uh, data as Antonio has, has described. 
but it, you know, and they, they use it, they, they, they don't do tracking as they define it. Right. But, but still it's the same data being used to personalize ads and they just, they've just redrawn the boundaries around it. And they said, well, everything within this circle belongs to us and it's fair, it's fair game for us. And Hey, if your circle is as big as ours, good for you, but it's probably not. Right. And, and that's, that's what they've essentially done. And so like, yes, um, they can make the case that that's more private, but what, you know, what a, a true privacy purist would say is like, well, no, I don't want any of my behavioral data used to target ads. Where's that option? Well, that option doesn't exist. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So just to clarify those, you know, who, are, who aren't familiar with the OS thing, right. That like the way apps live in these, whether it be iOS or Android, right, is heavily siloed, right? Like if you have, if you're an app publisher, you have no access to anything else in the operating system or any other app, right? And so if, you know, app A was selling an ad and app B wanted to buy an ad there, those two would have to share a common language how to do that. And again, this primary key enables that now, but unless, you know, let's assume a world in which Google's advertising ideas didn't exist, Google would have to interpose itself and actually run that. Yeah, Andrew, yeah, I want to double down on that, just make sure people get that. Like the the way it works right now is app A and app B can look at this, the phone identifier number and they can basically use that to coordinate and say, oh, you right. saw an ad here, it converted over here. You could also do that via the cloud. And this, and this is why it's important to understand that ATT is broader than just banning the use of IDFA. It also bans the use of backend linking up. Now you could try to work around that, but it's definitely explicitly against ATT and Apple reserves the right to basically kick you out of the store if you try to do it. Yeah, let me, the, the analogy I use, Ben, that I've come up with that I think gets it across to people because you've already used a bunch of three-letter acronyms. Ad tech is like the land of three-letter acronyms. The way I would convey it to people who maybe aren't so steeped in this field, it's like, just think about the social security number, right? It wasn't invented as like your global financial ID inside the American financial system, right? It was meant to like keep track of this social insurance program, but it's basically become that, right? When you apply for a loan at a bank or a credit card or anything, your social security number is you inside the American financial system, right? And the comparable thing is what Apple did with IDSA, IDFA, it's imagine the social security administration just said, nope, we're just not going to use, we're not going to give social security numbers anymore. We're, we're just not going to, it's just not going to, it's not going to be the case that I can look at Ben Thompson's social security number and figure out his credit score. You're going to have to come directly to me, right? The social security administration, and it's going to have to interpose itself into every financial transaction to basically disambiguate who Ben Thompson is financially, right? That's, to, I don't know if that metaphor helps or not, but it, I think it's one way of conveying the magnitude of this change, right? It really is, it really is a big, big right. change. Right, and, 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 and the second part of app transparency, see, I, the problem with using acronyms all the time is that you forget what they actually mean, um, but, <laughs> but is that, uh, it also basically eliminates Experian and and all the like, the, the, right. all these, which by the way, everyone hears that and starts applauding, right? It's like, great, those those companies suck, right? But they do, but you end up in a situation where the DMV is in control of everything, right? So like, it, it, right. It, goes, it goes back and forth. Right, that's, and then the other thing I wanted to say, um, you made another good point, Eric. Um, that I, I lost it because we got into the social security thing. But um, in any case. Um, well, I'll take the compliment. I, one, one thing I liked about your piece um, was the, the, the metaphor of just deleting the primary key, right? And right. what I liked about that was that that's exactly how a lot of companies set up their sort of like uh, their, their, their GDPR compliance mechanism. It was exactly yes. that. 
It was just <laughs> that when okay, you've requested to to have your data deleted. All right, and then I'm just going to delete your. I, they they're doing exactly what Apple did. They 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 just deleted the the user ID, right? If you delete it or you deleted the link between the account and the user ID, and once you did that, there was all this data still in the database. They didn't delete that because um, that was useful in aggregate to to tune models, right? To tune, you know, I'm coming from the, the gaming right. background to, to to tune like game economy models, and they didn't want to lose that. They didn't need that at the individual level. They, they, in aggregate, it was still valuable. But I just deleted that link between your account and this this unique ID, and once I did that, you're anonymous, and that's how all the data got sort of anonymized. Yeah, I'm glad, Eric, you caught that because that was actually meant to be an Easter egg, right? Because like anyone who's actually worked in this field and, you know, not too long ago, this is what I There's always a table somewhere that has IDFA or AID or JID as a column, right? And then there's all the rest of the user data in there, right? And, it, and that's like the global join across everything. And then when suddenly it's like, oh, fuck, GDPR compliance. And all that means is like in every other computer science program, it's like all you need is a layer of indirection, right? And so now there's some like, you know, bullshit made up ID that maps to the real ID right? And you put the bullshit ID in the actual table, and then you delete, you know, the foreign key when that user opts out or after the seven day, you know, purging period or whatever the hell it is. And that's how you functionally, quote unquote, delete data. But yeah, you're right that it's, it's as if Apple went to everyone's little IDFA table and like just deleted all the IDFAs, right? And suddenly it's just gone. Um, so, yeah. So, so what, an interesting, um, a question that I have is, it's pretty clear how ATT and IDFA are a problem for app installs. And Apple is clearly very well placed there. They have perfect knowledge of conversions. They have perfect knowledge of installations. And, and you know, if anything, their current offering is just kind of woefully inept compared to what it could be and what they, they are probably building. To what extent do you think that this reality, is this mostly about app installs? Or does this get into other marketing, into e-commerce marketing, into all those sorts of areas? Oh, it, it totally. I mean, ATT absolutely applies to to e-com and to DTC and, and to retail. It, it the 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 application of ATT is like specific to the obfuscation of the IDFA, right? So, like, if someone opts out, that app can't access the IDFA. It's just, it's, it's or they can, but it's a string of zeros, right? And so it's it's useless. Um, but the like I mean, and as you alluded to, Ben, the the policy is much broader than that. That that app is 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 not then allowed to go and collect their email address and send that to Facebook on the back end and say, hey, well, I don't have the right DFA, bummer. But here's an email address. See if you can match that. And then Facebook looks throughout its records. And and I mean, Facebook has every email you've ever used. It's, they don't just have the email that's attached to your 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 FBID. And 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 so you know, just using that back door is not an option, right, to get around this because there's a policy that applies here. And Facebook has said we're going to comply with the policy. So the 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 any sort of like web a advertisements that get displayed within the Facebook mobile app are are sort of constrained, or the the sort of the 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 destination of that uh, uh, of that advertisement um, is constrained. The data transmission from there is constrained by the same regulation. Um, as as applies to the obfuscation of the IDFA, there's just no like sort of physical constraint there. There's no physical limitation there. But but yeah, all e-com and all D2C, and, 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 and I mean, you've written about this with, with Shopify. Um, in fact, I think you've written probably the best kind of commentary about how Shopify actually uh, is, is a very sort of prominent player in this kind of reconfiguration of the landscape here. But but yeah, it absolutely applies to, to, to web advertising as well on mobile, right, from the mobile app, right, not on the desktop, but but all of Facebook's ad revenue comes from mobile, essentially. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's not just app installs here. It's it's all of the mobile commerce ecosystem is impacted. 
by this in the same way. Yeah, and I, I, so, yeah, I think so, that just there, there's a point worth making here that I think is is I I mean I think Facebook because it's all third party data, right? But there's an aspect where I mean Facebook is often the worst messenger for their best messages. Uh, and they've sort of come back at Apple with this, you know, we support small businesses, blah, 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 sort of rhetoric, and everyone rolls their eyes. But the reality is, is a lot like th- there's a ton of abuse here, right? And so there, there's a reason for this to happen. A lot of, there's a lot of good stuff though, too, which is if you're a, how do you compete with big players? Well, a bunch of small players sort of get together and compete, right? Do you want to write one? You want to fight one horse-shaped, you know, horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses, whatever it is, right? Like you get enough of the small players together, and they can be a force. And Facebook brought all the small players together to basically be a force of the size of a Google or of an Amazon, and that's what's sort of being disrupted. And and what I think is so interesting about this is, you know, the Shopify point is Shopify is now moving onto Facebook. You're going to be on Facebook in a Facebook shop making a purchase using Shopify's using shop pay and that way it's all first party data so facebook can collect it and trace it and do all the conversions and the funny thing is is this is definitely going to hurt facebook but it's also like deeply entrenching them right like shopify is shopify has always been very dependent on facebook but now they're absolutely dependent on facebook and and, and it's kind of like that's how these sort of like knock-on effects play out in these situations yeah just one comment there because i think Maybe we, we geeked out a little bit too much, and I think we assume too much. People might be wondering, like, why is Facebook screwed in this picture, right? Like Eric mentioned, or, you know, there is a Facebook user ID, right? They know who you are sort of individually, separately from the operating system, right? But that is only an internal Facebook thing, just, just to clarify, right? There's, there's no mapping from the actual device ID, like, like literally like the device that this app is running on to the user ID without Apple basically giving it to them, right? And they can actually strongly police this because any app has to go through the app store approval process and the actual system call that says get IDFA is obviously easy to catch. And so it, you know, Apple can actually forcibly, or Google for that matter, eventually if it happens, forcefully enforce it such that like Facebook does not get the IDFA at all, right? And just has no way of actually linking, you know, you browse on your iPad, right? and then you go and shop for the thing on your phone, Facebook won't be able to join those experiences in the way that Apple or Google could because they have OS level control. And so you might ask, well, what does Facebook do? Well, this is where we might get a little geeky, but there's the, the solution that Apple has proposed is this thing called SK Ad Network. And basically it, it lets a third party, again, third party from the point of view of Apple. By the way, that was the point, Eric, that you were making. The difference between first and third party is an important one in this entire conversation because it's, it's funny, everybody actually whatever benefits them in any particular data exchange, they always pick that one, right? So in this case, the, the, the handset manufacturer will consider themselves to be a first party, even though in fact, from the point of view of the publisher and the advertiser, they're actually being a third party, to be honest, right? But whatever. Um, but the point is that Apple, you know, or, you know, and then again, Google and some possible instantiation of this will make it such that, well, you can actually bucketize your users to a certain level of granularity, right? But you're not gonna have individual sort of user level control ever, right? Like anything downstream of the OS is never gonna have that level of control, not even Facebook, right? That's the big shift here, right? And so 
Um, and then the other thing you mentioned, which I think it's, it's I think one of the, it's funny, I don't know if this goes unheralded. I think Ben, well, you wrote about it, but I think most people don't realize that Facebook really legitimately is a huge vehicle for small business these days and small business budgets. Certainly was not the case when I was there. It was a super long tail distribution in which SMBs were like nothing. And then it grew to be like a significant fraction of the revenue. So, you know, Facebook isn't exactly lying through their teeth when they say that, well, you know, if Apple degrades our ads performance by making it such that we can't optimize to the level of granularity, it actually hurts small businesses. It's probably true that it, it actually will to a certain degree. But I agree with you that it's kind of a weak case because basically nobody believes Facebook at this point. But anyhow, yeah. well, it, it is true. I mean, I, I mean, Cheryl says this. It's it's the, their, the revenue, I think, is, is, is majority SMBs. Right. It just right. depends. It's not they're not it's not florists. Right. It's not the bike bicycle shop down the street. Right. Where, you know, the guy's right. name, you know, it's 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 like an eight person D2C company that raised $8 million in VC funding. Right. It's, it's not right. like, and they couldn't say that. Right. And that's why it's a little bit, it's a little bit disingenuous, but what were they going to say? Because my, my sense was like, they can't, they, what they could have done and what would have been more convincing is to say, look, this hurts the consumer. And I, I do believe it does, but you'd have to explain why. And they'd have to explain how the sausage is made. And they'd have to basically, uh, you know, they'd have to, they'd have to write this, the post that you wrote, Antonio. And consumers would read that and be like, I'm deleting Facebook immediately. I didn't know you did this. Right. I mean, that that but but also not understanding like, well, hey, this is what delivers all these free products to you. And this is how all these freemium apps and, and all these, uh, you know, these 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 products that you see that are that are advertised to you. That's how they're able to exist. Um, and, and, and I know you like those, but people wouldn't they, they wouldn't they, when they wouldn't be able to stomach the idea of like. This, this sort of like data collection happening in the cloud, which I, under, I understand, but but th that's why they had to go in the alternate route of just saying, well, this is going to hurt small businesses and kind of take it from the other direction. Well, the, the other thing, too, is that I think people don't appreciate is there is this story in The Wall Street Journal, I, I think this week or last week, about how advertising shifting spending to Android after iOS 14.5, blah, 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 blah. And I, I think what people I think the fact that on digital ads are sold via auction is one of the most underappreciated aspects of how these markets work. And, and people will say, oh, Facebook ad prices are going up. That shows they have a monopoly. Well, no, it doesn't because Facebook's not setting the prices. They're just like there's more competition for a limited number of inventory. If anything, that's actually a bearish signal on Facebook that their inventory is not growing sufficiently enough. But but I, I digress. But the, the point here is if, if advertising is shifting to Android, Users on iOS are not getting less apps. They're just getting or not getting less ads. They're just getting worse ads, right? Because you pay more if you're more sure that this user is going to be interested in this ad. And I think it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of people where they're like, you know, like, like uh, Instagram is probably the best at this. It's like it blows my mind how many ads I'm actually interested in on Instagram. And guess what? When you're going through Instagram and tapping through those stories, and every one of those ads sucks, like that's a crappy experience. And it's not good for Facebook for sure, but it's it's it's, it's not, a, I mean, I feel like a moron arguing this, that this is like people like good ads are good, but it's actually true. And you're what's gonna happen is people have this thought in their head that, oh, we're just not gonna get any more ads on iOS. No, you're still gonna get ads, you're just gonna be terrible. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's like, it's like the self-excusing mantra that ad tech people use is like, hey, we pay for the internet. And it's, I mean, it's kind of true, right? It does pay for a lot of the internet. And if you, 
again, I think if you turn the privacy knob too aggressively in one direction, then you just end up with shitty ads and like those dumb pun- punch the monkey ads that we had on like, you know, Yahoo Display Network in like the early aughts or whatever. Like the experience is just the publishers make less money. The advertisers have less ability to sell you things. And the user gets annoyed by crappy ads. Like basically everybody loses other than, you know, the European Union or whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, I was so just bend it to, to, to sort of address what you said. You know, most users don't understand that this auction sort of exists, you know, behind the, the serving of an ad. I, I, most marketing professionals don't understand that, right? Like this is esoteric stuff. I, I, I bet, and partly because Facebook's platform was so easy to use, right? I mean, it's abstracted away all of the mechanics of, you know, the serving of ads. It's basically like, I mean, a, a person, and, and this is why Facebook's SMB, you know, revenue base has grown so much. You could log into Facebook um, as a new user. You just created your account and you could probably be serving ads within like a 10 minutes, right? I mean, if you had the creative ready to go, if you had like an ad, you know, image ready to go or something, it's so easy to use and scale because Facebook, you know, built all this, you know, optimization um, machinery behind that. But just just the idea that like, you know, the, the auction drives the pricing, even advertisers don't understand that, right? And so like, that's why I think partially, you know, this 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 privacy vehicle through like and i feel like it's kind of a trojan horse but but like this privacy vehicle was able to sort of penetrate the the you know kind of the tech media and and just be celebrated and these ads be you know lauded and apple's you know decision here be lauded because people just have no idea what what the machinations of this right like they don't understand like well well they just think facebook bad and and that's just kind of it's just accepted, right? It's almost like this, this, this unconscious belief system. Um, and I think maybe we could pivot a little bit to the FTC stuff because I think that's really interesting as well uh, with what happened, I guess, last week with the case being thrown out with the FTC was trying to push that line of reasoning too. It's like, well, we all know Facebook's a monopoly. So because they control 60% and as the judge is like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Like, you're not going to sell that here. Like you have to prove it, right? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if you guys want to go there. Well, I, I do think it's a good point that like I, I, I think the um, and I think this is a case with just just analysts and regulators broadly n- not understanding the because this is an auction, like the the ads are always going to be there. It was very interesting because you saw this when COVID hit where there was uh, I, I thought the analysts largely overreacted to the sort of prospects of the tech platforms. Because, you know, oh, well, this advertising is going to go away. And it, 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 you have a frame of reference of like the TV ad networks where you go to the advances and you pre-buy these ads and you sell ads on the spot market. And like if someone pulls out, like you're kind of screwed. Right. But it, in the case of Facebook, like the the fact that these ads are so perfectly measurable, like if you're a game developer, you can know if your game was installed. You can know if the user monetized. And because of that, you can actually specify exactly how much you're willing to spend. And if other people stop buying ads, boom, you automatically step in and buy those same ads and you do it right up to your, your ROI point. And this is, it gives Facebook, it makes Facebook almost, you know, uh, anti-fragile where, where like anything that bad happens just makes them stronger. And I think what's interesting is Facebook's one real Achilles heel was Apple because Apple, that's exactly what Apple has disrupted is that, that very tight tying where you can know exactly what your ROI is. And I guess my question for you two is I, I'm really curious about Apple 
to what extent are they going to do the Apple thing and build it all themselves? And what's interesting is Apple does have a huge ad dependency because they make so much money from the app store. And all of that, a huge amount of that money is driven by ads. And Facebook has been the best thing to happen to the app store because Facebook did all the dirty work for Apple. And if Apple wants to take that over, to what extent are they going to do it themselves? Or are they going to really develop SKAD Network in a meaningful way so that Facebook and other companies can continue sort of doing their dirty work? Uh, well, I, I can take this. Uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, I, I'm probably the only one that can. But uh, I, I, I can't. Indeed. <laughs> I, I, I can't see Apple replacing what is lost with Facebook. But I don't, I, don't think they, I don't think they think they need to. My sense is that they feel that there is demand that exists in like sort of, uh, you know, this kind of constant state, right? Like if you, if you thought about uh, the demand curve, it's not, it's not, it's not increased by, by the existence of these Facebook ads. Um, and, and therefore, like if someone gets served an ad on Facebook for a game they want to play or, or for a, uh, a sweater they want to buy or whatever, um, well, they don't care about the sweaters, but let, let's say they, an app they want to use, a travel app or a dating app or a, a gaming app, they get served that on Facebook. And because they saw that app, they, that ad, they click through and they download that app. And that download was directly resultant from that, that ad view. I'm, my sense is that Apple thinks, well, if they don't see that ad view and they want that, that demand exists within them to, to utilize that app, then, then they're going to go to the app store and they're going to search it out. And that's better for Apple. That's better for Apple if their app store is utilized in that way. It's utilized as the first point of discovery as opposed to just this kind of like frictional point that exists between the ad click and the install of an app. Right? My sense is that Apple saw that happening and they said, hey, first of all, we don't get any cut of that. All of this ad revenue that's floating around in the app ecosystem and the app economy, is, it's, it's off limits to us. It, it's, it's irrelevant to us. Right. So like that's annoying. Um, and probably we can capture some of that by making our ad network bigger, but probably not all of that because we're never going to build an ad, uh, an ad technology that, that rivals Facebook's. But, but on the other hand, like they see that that is front running an app, a search in the app store. That's it's front running, uh, someone going to, uh, you know, uh, uh, deliver someone going to exploit that intent via a search and opening the app store and searching for whatever they want. Right. And if, when they search for what they want, then A, we could sell an ad, but B, we can deliver them what we want them to have, right? There are apps that help us as, as the uh, premier kind of like luxury ecosystem. There are apps that help us, uh, you know, sort of like protect that, that brand identity relative to Android. And so we're going to promote them. We're going to, you know, we're going to sort of surface them first. Then we're going to push them through featuring and we're going to make them the app of the week or whatever. And so my sense is that like it was less about the economics of serving ads and more about like, Hey, we want to be the curators of the app economy on iOS. And how do we do that? We get people to stop clicking on apps. Sorry, stop clicking on ads to then go download apps. And we force them to go through the app store to discover apps. And then we can sort of surface whatever we think is most beneficial to us. Like the most beautiful, the most engaging, like the, 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 the most Apple E apps, we can surface them, uh, those apps to users. And then in that way, we can sort of like protect the brand imaging of, of the, of the, um, of the app store of the iPhone. And we can protect just the, the sort of like general look and feel of the iPhone, you know, versus like what, 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 what predominates now, like what dominates 
the the top downloaded games. It's like those, you know, superficial, really, you know, just ugly, uh, hyper casual games. And that's got to drive Apple nuts. I mean, I know that it does. Um, and so they're able to sort of like subvert that with with this move. I think it's less about the economics of advertising and more about having more control over the, the iOS uh, ecosystem. So what's what, so I mean, part of me really wants to agree with you. But then another part of me is like Apple's policies around the App Store are giving them an absolute headache all over the place in the in the EU, in the US, with developers, with in court. And they are so like they're fighting tooth and nail to sort of preserve their position. And it just seems odd to me. It, I mean, it, frankly, it does seem plausible, but it seems odd to me that they would really risk sort of a fundamental driver of that revenue while they're still trying to hold on to that revenue, right? It's, it's kind of this weird situation. And I mean, you can see a situation where they've convinced themselves that they deserve that revenue and also that they're, they're privacy forward and, and like they're telling them the story and they're sort of tricking themselves. But at the same time, it's like, that feels like a very, like I always tell myself when you, when you're analyzing companies, presume they're smart, right? And it's like, are they, are they being smart here? Like it, I'm, I'm honestly unsure. It's one of the biggest open questions for me about all this entire shift is has Apple really thought all of this through? And, and, and I, I don't know the answer yet. Uh, I, I think they have. My, my sense is that they are very smart. Um, but at the same time, it's a massive org, right, with with like kind of multiple fiefdoms. And, you know, those those fiefdoms probably don't, uh, I don't know, collaborate, uh, in, you know, totally. Right. I mean, and my sense is that like this is a decision that was made by one of those fiefdoms that kind of had to be carried out in another in, a, in another of them. And so maybe there was like a high level, big picture decision that was made, um, you know, that that wasn't necessarily like uh, socialized, you know, with with the fiefdom that that is responsible for distribution, right, of apps. Um, but my sense is that like kind of mid-ish term and I if, put put aside like the, the surge in Android price, because I, I do think that's like just a short term uh, anomaly. Right. I think that's just like a uh, I. I I wrote a tweet the other day. I called it crowding in the lifeboats. Like that, that's not sustainable. Everyone that was spending on Android was already spending on Android, right? They were spending as much as they could. Like the fact that Android prices are going way up isn't indicative of like uh, a kind of like permanent step change in Android ad prices. It's just people spending kind of irrationally or, or people actually probably just deploying test budget, right? To see how much they can spend on Android before they kind of hit the profitability uh, limit. But, but, so put that aside. That's a short-term thing. I think that probably stops at the end of this quarter. Um, so it's not like a, a, a platform migration. I, I think for the most part, it's just like a reconfiguration of who has the power within the iOS ecosystem. And I, I feel like Apple believes that they're not going to lose money. Like the ads were driving people to the games and the apps, and mostly games, but the apps that they most monetized in. Um, but in some cases they drove them to games that Apple didn't get any cut of the revenue that was generated from, right? Because that was ad driven. So my sense is that like, well, if we eliminate all of these ads driven games, and, and again, it's mostly games, uh, and we push people into other IAP driven games, well, then we actually start to get a cut of this revenue, right? Of these games that we promote because people have to go through the app store to discover them. Right. And we kind of kill off this ecosystem of games that monetize only through ads, which we didn't benefit from at all. Right. So my sense is like there's probably some calculus behind this that 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 in the mid ish term, 
beyond this weird Android spike uh, probably works in Apple's favor. I don't know if that was, was that a convincing answer or no? You still feel like uh, Apple doesn't know what they're doing. I can't comment on any of this. No, that was to that was that was to Ben. That was to Ben. <laughs> do, do we have no, we have no takers on the FTP oh, yeah, on the back. FTC Sorry, stuff? Uh, well, no, I was just gonna say. Um, I was gonna highlight the fact that uh, th- there's been a huge growth in ad supported games that advertise for each other. And, uh, and and that don't have any in-app purchase at all, and I think that that's something that everyone thinks about in-app purchase games. But there's this whole other ecosystem. I think your point, Eric, about that being wiped out and replaced by just in-app purchase games is a really smart one. But do we have no takers on the FTP on the FTC stuff? I, I think that's really it was really fascinating. Well, I, I, mean, I think it, it, this was obvious when they when they filed the case. I mean, they tried to so narrowly define Facebook's market such that it excluded LinkedIn and also their definition basically excluded WhatsApp, which was kind of funny. Uh, and then the entire lawsuit didn't mention TikTok once when basically the, the only scarce resource in digital is time, which makes TikTok by definition like one of Facebook's biggest threats ever. Uh, it, it's just, it, it, it's a, it, you're, it felt like, yeah, it felt like let's get Facebook, everyone's against Facebook, this will be easy. And, uh, and there was, the market definition was was ridiculous, and the judge was sort of right to call it out. Well, so do so my my issue there is, and in, in I hundred percent agree with you that I I didn't feel like this was tenable at the time. But like, if that's that, presumably there were a lot of people that worked on that, right? And like, the best they could do was like, hey, since we all know that Facebook is a monopoly, then why don't we just agree that blah blah blah? You know, and if that was the best they could do, like my sense is like. I, I don't trust that there's a regulatory body and I don't trust really that the legislative bodies are, are capable of policing these companies. Right. And that's why I'm very wary of any policy that's put forth uh, by a big platform company in the name of privacy, right. To be anything other than a market grab. And so I, I worry about privacy being sort of used that way, like kind of as a cudgel, to, to just basically chip away at, at market share or to sort of like redefine standards that in a way that just benefits the prevailing platform. Like, I, I feel like privacy in that way has kind of been weaponized. And to Antonio's point, like, yeah, there, there's the dial. It's a trade-off. There's always a trade-off. Uh, privacy and utility. And like when you ramp that way up, the privacy side, it, it always becomes beneficial to the platform. And I, I just worry that, can, is there any sort like, if the regulators couldn't even come with like metrics to, to, to support the idea that Facebook's a monopoly, right? And I, I don't think Facebook's a monopoly, but, but if they couldn't even sort of define metrics to support that argument, like where, where, where are they when we're in this like fast moving situation with like things like ATT and private relay and, and flock and how, how could they possibly keep up? I just worry that there's no regulatory capacity to police Th- you know, when w- situations where there probably is overreach, right? Or there probably is abuse. Well, I mean, the, the issue is that Facebook is not a monopoly. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really the, 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 the fundamental the fundamental issue. And uh, and the reality is, is and this is why I think there's a sense that 
people want to fight these companies and take them on because they're big. And traditionally, the tool you reached for when a company was big was antitrust. And this has basically been one of the core themes to Techery is that these companies win by controlling demand, not by controlling supply. The traditional tools don't work. The only possible way if you want to do something is to make is to get new tools, not to sort of use the old ones. But but Antonio, I want to take this back full circle. Like I, what I'm really curious about is in this new world. OK, so so to to Eric's point, it may be self-serving to sort of like GDPR. I think we've seen as further entrenched Facebook and Google. It hurt them. Of course, it hurt everybody, but it's all relative. It made them it made them relatively stronger. Um does this world where Apple and Google really have this sort of dominant position in creating this entire new ad ecosystem, is it is it worth it, right? Because there are, as you noted, there are really clear wins. Like you, all your data really is on your device. It's interesting how sort of how much pushback there's been against Flock, uh, which in many respects, again, like fills, fulfills the letter of the law as far as privacy relations are concerned, but people, people are still upset about it. Like, it, what are the upsides and the advantages of this world we sort of seem to be careening towards? I mean, one is that I think the privacy regulators aren't going to figure it out for at least two or three years. Um, well, there's a few on this call, so we'll see. Um, yeah, no, well, oh, are there? Oh, shit, Jesus. I should probably have a better block list on Twitter spaces. <laughs> Anyhow, um, sorry, not for the regulators, but for the journalists. But in any case, um, um Although, I, you know, it's funny, I, I mentioned one of the footnotes in the piece um, in the, the most recent, like, congressional little circus or whatever, uh, there was the, um, I think it was a senator from North Dakota who actually asked a really good question about Flocked to Senator Pichai, who, of course, just kind of evaded it and promised future white papers. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it just, it throws everything for a loop, right? Like, I think somebody hinted at earlier, right? Like, by the letter of the law, what's hap- what, you know, in this theoretical system I'm describing, Right. The obvious personalization that, in fact, is happening is not legally personalization. Right. Personalization is when your behavioral data gets associated with your personal identifier and goes into the cloud. And that's not happening, even though, of course, in the spirit of the law, of course, personalization is happening on the phone. Right. Even better than what happened in the cloud, because there's much more data about you. So there's there's just that level of like confusion and evasion in two or three years of runtime, I think. Um, And um, I don't know. To me, one of the big questions that I still don't totally understand is, does the consumer really care? Right. And I think when this whole thing blew up, like I think I had a quote in Chaos Monkeys that like users really don't care about privacy. And it's true to an extent. Right. If you actually look at, for example, Facebook's usage graph over the course of the past four years as this whole, quote unquote, anti-tech backlash ramped up, you can't point to any kink in the curve and say, oh, here's where people started worrying about privacy. Right. The, The trends look the same no matter what, as if the entire backlash didn't happen. Right. And so I, I'm not sure how much users actually care about it in terms of like, oh, I'm not going to use my iPhone less, or I'm going I'm to buy an iPhone instead of an Android because I feel it feels safer or something. Um, yeah. Well, my 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 kind of sort of go to like like waypoint when I think about that is like it is a pervasively believed myth that Facebook listens to you all the time on your microphone. And, and it, it's so pervasive that, like, I think uh, it, it came up in uh, one of the congressional testimonies. I don't, I don't remember which one, but uh, I, I think it was maybe a senator or, or a, some, someone asked Mark Zuckerberg, like, do, do you listen to people on their, on their, on the, through their microphone? 
And he said, no, we don't do that. Like we, we just, I, I'm, I, I can, I, you know, he didn't deflect and as, he, as he did with a bunch of questions and said, well, I'll get back to you. We, like, no, I, I can unequivocally state that we do not listen to you on your microphone to, to, to gather data. But people believe that, but pe- people overwhelmingly believe that. And, and yet, <laughs> and yet look at Facebook's DAU numbers, look at their stature. I mean, like people believe this, that, like that's real surveillance, right? They believe that is happening in the background surreptitiously, but they continue to use Facebook. They don't immediately sort of like put their phone in the microwave. Right. And, 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 and if that's the case, then like, I, and, and I mean, you know, that's just a, a, a simple, I don't know, hypothetical, but like, you know, the other, the other thing is like, there's, well, there's, there's a lot of data, you know, there's a lot, there's just a lot of like surveys that of, of, and there was a recent one with like PricewaterhouseCoopers that I, I tweeted about a couple of days ago. And it was like, it was like, you know, would you prefer, uh, you know, uh, uh, an ad subsidized service that used data to target ads to you? Or would you prefer to pay? And it was just overwhelmingly that people would prefer an ad subsidized service. And, and so, like, I, I think people gen- generally, like, don't have a problem with their their sort of, quote unquote, data, like the, the, their usage data, their behavioral data, the data that they sort of like actively submit to these products. They don't have a problem, like a, a philosophical problem, with that data being used f- it f- for in service of providing a free product to them, right? Now they don't want it, you know, sent out into the cloud and then, like, you know, transacted upon and then, you know, come come comes back to them in like in like some sort of like pernicious way. But like they have no problem with that if it, if it literally is, I'm giving you my data, right, so that this product is free, right? And that and that's like the kind of the, the sort of the threat, right, um, that, 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 you know, I, I think it's like an empty sort of like hollow bogeyman that the, the press has always kind of like put forth. Is it like, well, maybe Facebook should start charging? Like, well, that would be, that would be disastrous for Facebook. All that, do, that doesn't, that, that's not like, a, I think the way it's presented is like, that, that'd be a good thing because they'd stop using your data. But really what it is, it's like, a, it's, it's almost like a threat to users. Like, well, no, you're going to have to, you're going to have to stop using this because Facebook's going to charge. And I really just don't think that th- that that consideration has ever kind of been recognized, like that trade-off, but also the fact that users would happily sort of—I I don't want to say like some like like have their data be 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 um, just just kind of like in the background taken from them, but like they would happily sort of accept the fact that the data I give to these products when I use them in the same way that like when I walk into a shop, I know that I'm under surveillance from a camera, and like well that. I guess is, uh, you know, just a trade off with my safety or whatever. But like in the same way that I use a product, I know that like when I click this button, they, they know that and they're collecting that. Like, I think I think there's there's never been a recognition of that in the sort of analysis of this of this sort of like privacy situation, in the privacy debate, which is it's just it, it's it's not aligned with what users have 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 sort of showcased with like the whole idea of like Facebook's listening to me, yet I still continue to use Facebook or what they say in, in generally in, in like polls. Well, I think yeah. you make a. I think one one good point that you make, Eric, is, is th- this bit where um, pe- people the, the question of like what data is super important to right there. You've noted again and again that there have been ex- there have been abuses in the ad tech space, right? There are people. It's funny, like like the best question from Facebook's perspective is when congressmen talk about you know congresswomen talk about them selling data. And they can say, no, we don't sell data, right? No, of course they don't sell data. Like that's that, that's what is valuable. But there are people who do sell data, and that that's obviously a problem. At at the same time, 
a lot of this data, it's like, why is that? Why are we defining that as the user's data, right? Is my like progression in a game, is that, is that my data? Like to what extent is that my data versus the developer's data? Like tracking how far someone progressed in the game. Like it's, it's, it's this very weird sort of definition of data ownership. Here's another example I think is very interesting and, and problematic. And this is one of the things about GDPR that, that really bugs me is uh, we have come to this situation where we can't export address books or contacts or your network graph because the email address of your friends is defined as your friend's personal data. You don't have permission to export that, which if you think about it is really weird, right? We've had the concept of address books forever, like, and this idea that, no, that's my address book. No, the way it actually plays out in regulation is your, that address book is not yours. It's not your friends. It's Facebook's. And why do we decide that Facebook gets to own our address books, right? This idea that I can't take my contacts with me is, is like a perversion of, of what we're going for and is actually counter to the way we've thought about things for, for a very long time. And I think you see this again and again, where the definition of whose data it is, like if you don't think deeply about it, sort of leads to all these sort of unintended outcomes. And, and you, see, you see it play out in, in lots of different areas. Yeah, so it, it, those are all interesting points. One, one thinker, one set of thinking that I, I want to point out, there's this great researcher at Stanford called uh, Helen Nissenbaum, and she wrote a book called Privacy in Context. And she has a concept, kind of what you're getting at, Ben, um, although it sounds kind of academic, is, uh, you know, contextual, what she calls contextual integrity or contextual privacy. And what that means is, you know, when I go to a doctor, right, I, like I understand that I'm having a violation of privacy. They're like imaging my skull or something, right? But the, you know, I do that in exchange for medical care, right? And I expect, and if like my doctor wanted to share it with like a radiologist across the world, because that's a better radiologist, then of course I would say, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, helps you find the brain tumor or whatever, right? But if that doctor wanted to sell that to like a pharmaceutical company, I would have a freak out, right? And that's, you know, that's the reality that in privacy, again, I agree, like a lot of the, you know, the privacy industrial complex, all these people who kind of like follow along and advocate, whatever, you know, it's, nobody actually wants absolute privacy. I mean, that's living in a cabin in the woods with no internet, which I've done and is crazy. And most people would not actually want it, right? Like people obviously come up with, they negotiate their privacy, right? And they, they trade some of their privacy for a feeling of community and connection, which they do by sharing their lives on Facebook, or security in the case of the Fourth Amendment, right? Like we all sign up as citizens saying, yeah, the cops can kick at my door if a judge signs a piece of paper and says they can do it, right? Or, you know, for security or anything else, right? And so I think we, like you're saying, I think you're implying we, you know, privacy is going, my next piece is going to be called going from privacy switch to privacy knob, right? Because the notion of like us going through some like legal flow chart and it ending up at like through some Boolean circuit. And at the end, it's like, yes, true or false. This is private or false. is not the way that anybody thinks about privacy, right? There's, there's degrees of privacy and it kind of meshes nicely with the technical concept of like differential privacy and, and whatnot, right? That like you can literally turn on a knob and say, okay, we're going to give you so much privacy that like, you're not going to be able to target any group smaller than 10,000 people or whatever, this concept called canonymity in the differential privacy space, right? And so in some sense, it's not like there's no targeting. It's not like there's hyper-targeting. It's like, well, you're targeted to like a big enough group such that you individually are never going to get figured out, almost certainly, right? And so, which again, I think is how people actually tend to think about um, privacy in, in reality. And I'll make one last comment. Maybe we can wrap it up because we're like way over the hour. You know, all this talk about privacy, it's funny. The more, I, the more and more I read about it, it's one of the topics that kind of fascinates me now 
Um, I'll just mention a few historical facts because I, I find them fascinating. The, and I, I mentioned them in my piece. The modern use of the word privacy is only documented in 1814, actually, before, before our current you, you know, meaning of it, which is like the right to control my data or the right to live as a stranger among strangers. Privacy literally just meant solitude. It didn't have any legal implication whatsoever. It doesn't appear in the Constitution even once. Um, all the legal jurisprudence around it starts in 1890 when future Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis wrote a thing called uh, a, a legal brief called um, the right to privacy that he more or less invented with a document, which, by the way, is very readable. And I recommend people reading. It's actually very good. It's a very good piece. And almost all the case law comes from from the 1890s on. Um, it, well, another interesting anecdote. The reason why Brandeis actually wrote that piece is because there was two inventions that happened right around 1890. One, Kodak released its brownie camera, which made photography relatively cheap. And that meant that like journalists, the, it, you know, the paparazzi could come by and take a photo of you just being embarrassing. And then the telegraph and the wire services could mean that that photo could actually be spread and that news could be spread around the United States. So similar to the, how right now suddenly information is a lot more liquid and transmissible than, than kind of it's been historically. Uh, that also happened in the late 19th century, and that's what we invented, this privacy thing, which is not my attempt to, like, delegitimize <laughs> requests for privacies, but just to say that it's, like, not quite as foundational a human right, right? Like, the Code of Hammurabi doesn't have a privacy chapter, <laughs> right? This is a very recent modern phenomenon that we're kind of making up as we go along, right? And I think a lot of our intuitions about it, and certainly a lot of the legal regulation around it, is not, I think, faithful to sort of the individual user's notion of what privacy means. And I think getting back to, like, the smartwatch with all my health data, we're going to have to get a lot smarter about how privacy works, I think, uh, for us to live like relatively normal people in a world where, you know, all the craziness that we experience and that we all know and love from Twitter and everywhere else. But, it, it is interesting, Antonio, that that timing is also when sort of our antitrust laws came along. And right. I, I don't know, I don't know if there's any significance to that, but it does strike me that they, they seem to have sort of arisen at the same time. And the tension is sort of like what, one of the biggest points that we're making here. But I think we're, well, it's probably caused by the same thing, which was urbanization and industrialization, right? Like I, you know, getting back to living in a cabin in the woods, I used to live in a little island in the Northwest. And guess what? In the traditional small town environment, nobody has any privacy whatsoever, right? Like having, wanting privacy is weird, right? Like if you live in a small town and like you hide out at home and don't tell anybody your name or what you do, like people look at you with suspicion, right? It's very strange, right? And so humans didn't think about privacy because privacy was suspect. You didn't want privacy, right? Like it was the exact opposite of community. But again, obviously, you know, we live in a very different world uh, than we used to and um, for better or worse. So we, we've had to invent a concept to kind of wrangle with that. Um, and, and here we are. Um, I have nothing else to say. I don't know if Ben or Eric, if you, something else that you wanted to touch on in, in our speaking points or in the post. Well, I could end um, just kind of dovetailing on your point, which is that the, uh, so I, I speak Estonian, and uh, Estonian has a lot of ancient words, and the kind of effective word for privacy is eraltatus, uh, which which kind of is what you would use in the modern context to talk about privacy, but really means uh, seclusion, right? So it means like solitude. Um, so just just kind of dovetailing on that idea that like yeah, it's it's a, it's a modern. I mean, which which makes sense because you know. There have been modern intrusions into, you know, the, the personal life. And Louis Brandeis's point was about like the risk to reputation of these things, right? Like right. Someone like a, a a person taking a picture of you in a compromising position. Well, that's going to risk my reputation, and and that was a modern invention. And then, of course, it forced this this new idea. And and you know, Lena Khan and she's part of the new Brandeis movement, right? To to resuscitate this idea that like privacy is a is 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 a part of uh you know this this group of rights that that really uh presents itself 
as 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 being this sort of like leading movement for um uh, you know sort of like progressive uh meaning but but in any case i would just say uh thank you antonio for organizing this it was a really fascinating chat and i'm uh i'm really glad to have participated eric random question are are, are you mormon by chance sorry that's an intrusive question am i mormon yes <laughs> no i'm not i i'm not nor have i ever been mormon not that i have any sort of disdain for Mormon? Uh, the reason but... I ask, sorry, this might have come off as weird, but whenever I meet an American who speaks fluently some bizarre niche language, oh. <laughs> it's almost always a Mormon who went on a mission and came back speaking fluent uh, Tigrinya or Swahili or whatever. It's yeah. like, what the hell, dude? You look like you're, you know, you, have, you look like your average white bread American. And you're sitting here speaking like fluent Tigrinya. Well, how the hell does this happen? Oh yeah, I spent two years knocking doors in Addis Ababa trying to convert people to Mormonism. Anyhow, yeah. sorry, random question because you mentioned the Estonian thing. I, so. Uh, yeah, I, I, so I, 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 I went to Estonia for for grad school research, but I did meet a lot of Mormons who were doing exactly that, and so I, that makes total sense. I think the one thing that I would just sort of add, and, and this is a great conversation, Antonio, is, well, one, obviously everyone should read uh, Pull Request, and you, you said it's one of N series of articles. Uh, I, I, we should start taking bets on how many it's going to take. Um, <laughs> but uh, the other thing is, I, I think it's worthwhile, and where I think the privacy debate falls short, is I do think it's worthwhile to continue to draw a line between online privacy and offline privacy. And I think some of the most disturbing and worrying invasions of privacy is sort of the digitization of the real world, where whether it be surveillance cameras or, you know, like the, the people worried about their microphones picking them up, which obviously isn't happening. But this idea where stuff that happens in the real world is becoming digitized and being stored forever. To me, that is what if I, I wish regulators would be way more worried about that sort of stuff. Instead of this sort of digital world where data is detrious, like it's just spewed off all the time and it's sort of endemic to being digital, I, I would I would kind of wish we could get to a state where we really focus on keeping digital digital and analog analog. And it's the combination of the two that to me is the real privacy concern. And, and, and I'm it's frustrating that no one seems to be paying attention to that. But Ben, what happens when the singularity happens and we're all just like code running on machines? Like it just becomes irrelevant, doesn't it, Ben? Uh, well, at that point, hopefully I'm retired. So, yeah, I mean, when it comes to analog privacy, it's funny, like having been on the other end of it. Sorry, everybody in the room. Uh, well, there's probably other people who are also in that position. I'm, I've been like the guy looking at the database table, seeing all your data everywhere you go. The optimal strategy is actually not opting on and be all nervous about your privacy. It's actually generating as much fucking data as you possibly can because you're going to get totally lost in the noise. Like you should buy like six phones and turn on all the best geo tracking and no one's going to have any idea where the hell you are. Well, the, the other thing, the other thing too is people have this view of privacy. Like they have the, the like the um, like like the Stasi, like going through their files and seeing everything about you. And the reality is the only way this happens at scale, the only way these auctions happen, the only way it happens in 120 milliseconds is that this data exists in a form that's not even human readable. Like no one, no one can go and look up your data. It's, it's not, it's, it, it wouldn't even function if it was in a form that that could be done. It's all just vector numbers and coefficients. Right. And it's completely meaningless to everyone. And, and there's this, like, that's why Apple's ads drive me up the wall. They, they, suggest a reality that is so far from the way it actually works that it, it, it sort of distorts the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, I have a, a chapter on privacy and chaos monkeys, my my memoir from back in the day that uh, 
recently was in the news again, and I titled it uh, The Narcissism of Privacy, right? Not to say that like everyone who wants privacy is narcissistic, but I think the first like knee-jerk reflex is exactly what you said, right? That like Mark Zuckerberg is sitting at home, personally listening to my microphone and laughing at the fight that I'm having with my girlfriend. It's like, sorry, <laughs> hate to break it to you. <laughs> Nobody actually cares about your shit that much, right? And, and even in the world in which you do care about somebody's location. Like somebody actually, after I, I sent that post, sent me a link to that. Is he in the space? Well, whatever, who knows? Uh, Tr Charlie Roselle, a New York Times reporter, or former New York Times reporter, and I forget who his co-author was. But, you know, it was one of these crazy scare pieces in which they bought like the geo-targeting data from like one of these sketchy third-party vendors who indeed sells data. And then they actually did the work that like nobody in the ads world ever does, which is looking at a single IDFA and threading together all the lat longs and then mapping it so that it made it seem as if like Big Brother was watching you via all this data, which again, doesn't, it, it'd be impossible to do, like it would just, it would be very difficult and nobody actually sells the data that way. But that's the way that it's presented. And the reason why it pisses me off is because it's just so, it's misleading and it just, it poisons the conversation. The conversation's already wonky and difficult enough, right? To then have people like, you know, floating these Big Brother-esque fantasies that are not in fact the reality of the industry. But okay, I'll get off my soapbox there, but yeah. Sounds good. Well, thank you for hosting, Antonio. It was, it was great to be here, and, and I'm really looking forward to the rest of the series. And if anyone has follow-up questions, I'm, I, well, all three of us are easy to find on Twitter, obviously. I, I tend to respond to replies. I don't, I don't know about the other two. But um, anyway, yeah, thanks for, thanks for listening. And, um, you know, I, hopefully we're all trying to <clears throat> push the big rock up the hill of informing people about ad tech so that they can make, uh, you know, smart choices about their data and how they consume and legislation and all the rest of it hopefully um cool well thanks ben thanks eric cheers thank you antonio, antonio. Thank you, all ben. right bye, -bye everybody <laughs> see you bye